I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to a London Review of Books podcast. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for turning out on this grim and grimy evening for the second of our winter lectures. Last week, Hilary Mantel, in a lecture on the royal body from Anne Boleyn to Kate Middleton, reminded us gently but incisively of the persistent atavism in our attitudes to members of the royal family. In particular, the way we regard them less as people and more as bodies charged with symbolic power. This week, we are privileged to hear David Runciman talk to us about the crisis of American democracy. And we might reflect that this is a pleasing contrast, moving, as it does, from Britain and its peculiar history of monarchy to America, which was born of an upsurge of democratic revulsion from that same monarchical tradition. But insofar as Hilary Mantel spoke of superstition, David Runciman's talk may turn out to be as much a development of her theme as a contrast to it. For, at any rate, in his articles for the London Review of Books over the last 17 years, he has returned frequently to the deep strain of superstition in our cherished beliefs about our world, and not least about democracy. That institution that on both sides of the Atlantic we so fiercely defend while participating in it with notorious apathy. It's odd, isn't it, how for all our education we go through our lives in a mental fog, in a cloud of half-knowing. And we are comfortable with this. We love to hold forth to each other on every subject under the sun, energised by certainty and fueling our disquisitions with confidently asserted facts from half-remembered newspaper reports or things we read on some blog. Above all, we quote statistics at each other without the faintest consciousness of how poorly we understand them. Reading David's articles in the LRB has acted for me as a welcome and rhythmic reminder of the weird flimsiness of most of my opinions about matters that involve the analysis of the numbers behind so-called facts. I remember especially his piece on the paradox of voting, that perplexing realisation that since general elections are never decided by a single vote, no one's vote is ever going to be missed. Or his piece showing the limitations of a so-called statistically-based analysis of football results, in particular, the mystery of home advantage. Or his surgical picking apart of some of the fallacies underlying the deeply attractive thesis of the spirit level, the book that drew a correlation between levels of inequality in a given society and quality of life as measured by key indices. Or his recent demolition of the We Are the 99% campaign, But if this gives an impression that David's writing is dry, nothing could be further from the truth, for he has a wonderful capacity to embed discussions about numbers into pieces of rich and wide-ranging scope, with wit and elegance and a clarity that holds our attention 
as it deepens our understanding and quietly disabuses us of our comfortable vagueness of mind. In the next issue of the LRB, you will be able to hear, read him on the perfumer affair and the function of scandals in our political life. David Runciman is a fellow of Trinity College, Cambridge, where he teaches politics. His recent books include Political Hypocrisy and The Politics of Good Intentions. His next book will be The Confidence Trap, a history of democracy in crisis from the First World War to the present. Tonight, it is the crisis of American democracy that he will be talking to us about. Thank you. Thank you very much. I hope you can hear me okay. Um, I don't know if I can live up to that. There are going to be a few numbers in this, but not too many. And I'll just give you one number to start with, which is that I've been asked to talk for an hour. I feel I should warn you about that. Um, and I will stop after an hour, I promise, and maybe slightly before. I want to start with what may be a statement of the obvious. American democracy is an amazing thing. It's amazing, it's fascinating, it's bewildering. It's always struck people as amazing. There's never been anything quite like it, even in the world we live in now, where democracy is a far more widespread phenomenon than it used to be. There's nothing quite like American democracy. I think to start with, at the beginning of the American Republic, what people found most amazing about it was just its sheer implausibility. The idea that you could actually do politics like this with this kind of relentless, chaotic, popular input. And it was also implausible at the beginning, particularly in British eyes, because it was so obviously bogus and fraudulent because of slavery. Slavery made a mockery of the ideals of American democracy. And outsiders could see that very clearly, insiders not always. Then in the second half of the 19th century, I think what really fascinated people about American democracy was its incredible capacity for violence. The Civil War was this truly cataclysmic event and Europe, which had seen its fair share of wars over the years, had never seen anything like that, that kind of industrial slaughter, until the First World War, which was in many ways Europe's civil war, until the Americans joined in in 1917, at which point it became a world war. And that then initiated the next phase of fascination with American democracy, which was fascination with its power, its extraordinary global reach, its continuing incredible capacity for extreme violence, but also the sense of promise that it seemed to embody, the sense of hope, the sense of optimism. And now, I think, what we have is a mixture of all of these things, certainly speaking for myself. There's an ongoing sense of the power of American democracy and a sense of the promise for Europeans in particular, maybe first time around, not second time around, embodied by the election of Barack Obama. There's a continuing fascination with the extreme capacity for violence of American democracy. But there's also a returning hint of that initial thought, which is just how implausible it is. Can you really carry on doing politics like that, that chaotic, fractured political system? And that's the question I want to try and, well, come to some kind of answer in this lecture. I'm not going to give a full answer to it, but it's the question that I want to address. But before I do, I just want to say something about that potted history, because clearly it's pretty crude. And the obvious rejoinder to it is that it's not the same thing. 
that thing that I've just described that I've called American democracy, has changed so much over 200 years, it doesn't really make sense to talk about some single entity that's developed over time. A democracy with slavery is completely different from one that's sort of chosen to abolish it. A democracy that denies the vote to all sorts of people is completely different from one that allows those people the vote. But the other thing that is unique about American democracy over that 200-year period is the things that have remained stable. And the most famous, of course, is the Constitution, which is an incredible, a uniquely durable, or to put it slightly differently, a uniquely entrenched document. But there's another story I want to tell very briefly, maybe not quite as noteworthy, but in some ways just as extraordinary, something that's remained constant over time in that story, for most of that story. In 1845, Congress decided that it would pass legislation which would require that the election of a president would have to happen on a particular day. Up until that point, part of the chaos of American democracy was that states could choose what day to hold their presidential elections, or rather, in the quirk of American politics, their election to the Electoral College. And so it took place over the course of a month. It was a complete mess. Different states would vote on different days. So Congress wanted to standardise it and regularise it. And they had to pick a day, and for technical reasons, they chose what is the Tuesday after the first Monday in November. And that, in perpetuity, it was legislated, would be presidential election day every four years. This is in 1845. And that's part of the implausibility of American democracy, the idea that you could legislate in perpetuity that a particular day every four years will be the day on which you choose a government, which is what effectively you're doing because there might be a war on. Uh, there might be some act of God that intervenes. There might be some natural disaster taking place. You might be in the middle of an economic crisis. And every other democracy in the world, including ours, does not hold elections under those circumstances. I mean, foot and mouth disease was enough to frighten us out of holding an election. But that date has remained the date every four years on which a presidential election is held. And it's, you have to sort of think about it to realise just how extraordinary that is. And, of course, there have been wars. In 1864, during the Civil War, the election happened on that day. In 1944, during the Second World War, none of the other combatants are holding elections. We certainly weren't. We think you have to wait until the war is finished until you hold your election, because it's crazy to elect a government during a war but Americans do it. In 2008, the financial crisis which broke with the collapse of Lehman Brothers was just a few weeks before a presidential election. And if you read Hank Paulson's memoirs, George Bush's Secretary of the Treasury, about dealing with that crisis, which in some ways, in that condensed form, was the most serious crisis, financial crisis, the American Republic has ever faced, just for those few weeks. As George Bush said, this sucker could go down. But Paulson writes in his memoirs about his absolute terror of holding an election campaign while this sucker could go down for fear of what McCain or Obama might say to pander for votes. And there are various things he listed that were they to say it would scupper any attempt to rescue that economy. And yet he never considers that there's any possibility that the election could be postponed. And in the 1890s, Congress decided to legislate that the midterm elections would also happen on that day that is, the, the Tuesday after the first Monday in November. And that's also happened. It's never budged from that day. And the only time the American government has ever considered seriously drawn up contingency plans to postpone Election Day was in 1918. In the spring and early summer of 1918, America having joined the First World War, 
American troops arriving in Europe and finding that that war was being lost, British, French and American troops were being pushed back towards Paris, and the conventional wisdom at that point was that Paris would fall in the summer, the German army was on the march to the coast, and that the thought was that America by the autumn would be involved in a total desperate war of defence, mass mobilisation would be happening, and contingency plans were drawn up to postpone the midterms. And then the German army fortunately collapsed. And the election was back on, and it happened on the 5th of November 1918. And by sticking to that date, history was changed, because if they'd waited even a week, just one week, the election would have happened on the 12th of November 1918, the second Tuesday in November, which would have been the day after Armistice Day, and the war would have finished. No other combatant would have considered democratic combatant France, Britain, holding an election while the war was still on, and Woodrow Wilson tried to take advantage of this in his campaign for those midterms. He tried to say to the American people, look, we are unique. We have our elections in wartime. So you are the only people who can actually say during this war what kind of peace you want. And his Republican opponents hammered him throughout October by saying, this man is talking peace while our boys are dying in France. And the Republicans won. And as Wilson's campaign manager said, there was a memo that he wrote to him after the election was finished where he said, the Republican campaign, which was based on the slogan of unconditional surrender and no negotiated peace, turned out to be surprisingly effective. I mean, if that's a surprise, it's a cheap market for campaign managers. So holding that date every two years now, on that day, regardless, is a unique feature of American democracy. Come hell or high water, the election must happen. And in 2012, it was literally come high water. Hurricane Sandy hit the week before the election. And there was no thought of postponing the election. And thank God for Obama, it did hit, because it probably saved him. I mean, he probably would have won anyway. But the evidence suggests that on the eastern seaboard of the United States, people being reminded of why you need a federal government was extremely good news for Obama. So this is a single system in a way. For all its changes, there is something here that has been stress-tested almost to death. And it is possible to talk about American democracy over this period as a single entity. And so the question is, does it work? Does this system of government really work? And I still think we don't know. You would think we would know by now. I mean, if we don't know this, what the hell do we know? But I don't think we do know. In a recent piece in the LRB, John Lanchester uh, wrote about summing up the state of knowledge in macroeconomics, that the basic summation of it is nobody knows anything. <laughs> and though there isn't such a thing as macro politics, I think, were there such a thing, the same thing would be true. We know endless things about micropolitics, particularly about American democracy, which has been studied to death. But on the big macro question, can you actually sustain this way of doing politics in the long run? We don't know. And when I say we don't know, I don't mean we can't answer that question. What I mean is I think that there are two obvious answers to that question. Does it actually work? And the first obvious answer is, of course it works. Just look at it. It has been stress-tested to death. And it has survived for 200 years. And during that time, the United States has become exponentially richer and more powerful to the point that it has become the richest and most powerful state that the world has ever seen. And on those measures, there has never been anything like it. And there are some states now that are richer. Norwegians are richer than Americans, but they sure aren't as powerful. Wealth and power have never gone together like that. 
And on those measures, and obviously they're not the only measures of success, that is the most successful system of government that the world has ever seen. And then the other obvious answer is no. Of course it doesn't work. Just look at it. Just look at it now. The word that is always used, it's, it's the cliché of any description of contemporary American democracy, is that it is dysfunctional. It is fundamentally dysfunctional, or to use an even more hideous cliché, it is not fit for purpose. It doesn't seem to work. That country is massively in debt, and its politicians do not know what to do about it. Its politics is toxically partisan. The two parties loathe each other, they cannot agree on anything, and then it, it's created these devices to try and bring the two parties together by setting these artificial deadlines, these moments in time, the fiscal cliff, and the debt ceiling, which are meant to say, look, if you haven't reached an agreement by this point, something really terrible is going to happen. So you better reach an agreement by this point, and let's kind of try and bind ourselves in to moments where we've got to stop the bickering. And the result is to increase the bickering exponentially because what the two sides do is they play chicken with these artificial deadlines, therefore breeding even more toxic mistrust. They don't trust each other. They hate each other, all the evidence suggests. And then the public loathe them, both parties. So by historic standards, levels of trust in American democracy are in the toilet. They are rock bottom. And what's striking about the situation now is that that's true both of the most democratic part of the Constitution, which is Congress, the people who have actually been elected by the people. The approval ratings for Congress are roughly 20 people, if you're lucky, think they're doing a good job, 20 in 100, 20%, and 80% think they're doing a bad job, so a minus, 70, minus 60 figure. But equally, the Supreme Court, the least democratic part of the Constitution, is also at historic lows of public approval. You might think these two things would balance each other out. At the moment, the most popular institution is the presidency, and Obama's not that popular. There's no trust anywhere in that system. Over the last 10 years, this country that is the richest and most powerful the world has ever seen has become less rich and less powerful. It's fighting wars that it doesn't know how to win and it doesn't know how to exit. The financial crisis and those wars have not just produced this level of debt, but over the last 10 years and perhaps longer, most people in America have seen, have seen their income stagnate or fall, except for a tiny, tiny minority, the famous 1%, or perhaps the 1% of the 1%. And whatever you think of the 99% campaign, and I was sceptical of it, there is something peculiar about a democratic system in which the 1% of the 1% make everyone else feel powerless. There's something odd going. If that system works, what, what's a democracy that doesn't work? So obviously yes and obviously no. So there's a puzzle here. And the easy way out of that puzzle is to say one of those answers has to trump the other one. So you could say the yes trumps the no. Yes, of course it works. And the basis for that would be that the yes is the long story and the no is the short story. Ten years is, relatively speaking, a blip compared to 200 years. And during those 200 years, there were lots of other blips. It's not a smooth story of progress. There were many moments when American democracy looked to be in trouble, but it recovered, and it has this remarkable ability to recover and to adapt. And it looks like maybe something like that is happening now. So I gave the title for this lecture, I think, about five months ago, before the election, and I said, I'll talk about the election. And there were one or two moments where I hoped Romney would win, 
because that would make this lecture a lot easier to give. <laughs> but he didn't. <laughs> and Obama's re-election is easy to fold into a recovery story. It looked pretty hairy for Obama during his first term, but he's back. His authority has been renewed. In, in some senses, it's been enhanced, the fact he survived the first term. The American economy may have turned a corner. Unemployment is slowly coming down. There's a hint that this, this bad 10 years, or on some accounts longer, even 40 years, may be turning a corner, as it's done so often in the past in the history of American democracy. Just at the darkest point is the hint of dawn. But it's also perfectly plausible to say that the no story trumps the yes story. The short-term story trumps the long-term story. And one way to put it is that if 10 years is a blip against 200 years, five months is a blip against 10 years. I mean, there's absolutely no reason for thinking that this five months signals the turning of a corner. It may do, but it equally, equally well may not do. We just don't know. But looking at it completely the other way around, 200 years is not that long. You know, Athenian democracy lasted for 200 years, and then it didn't. And the thing about the recent 10 years is, it, it, this might sound obvious, but it's important. It's at the end of that 200 years. And if American democracy is going to go into decline, there is going to be a bad 10 years at the end of it. And it's going to look something like the last 10 years. Toxic, stagnant politics. A miserable, powerless country in terms of its democracy, not in terms of its global power. How do we know that's not what it looks like? And the thing about these two stories, the no story and the yes story, or the optimistic story and the pessimistic story, doing it the other way around, is that they can explain the same set of facts, or the same facts. So I'm going to give you a few numbers in a minute now. But just to take the fact I just referred to, Obama's re-election. So on the positive, optimistic account, this is a turning point. And the country is moving slowly back towards something that would recognisably be a normal, adjusted form of democratic politics. There are hints that Republicans are waking up to the fact that they probably aren't going to win elections unless they start to make certain kinds of compromises with the American electorate. But if you look at the numbers, the data behind Obama's re-election, they are terrifying. And they suggest a country as divided as it has ever been in living memory on all sorts of fundamental criteria that do not suggest a moving back to an accommodation in the middle ground. So probably the most startling statistic about Obama's re-election is that if you just took the white electorate, white voters, who are 72% of the total, Romney won 59-39, which is a kind of Reagan-style landslide. Men voted overwhelmingly for Romney. Women voted equally overwhelmingly for Obama. And the reason that Obama won is that more women voted than men. If Republicans could find some way to get angry white men to actually vote, they would win. Married people voted for Romney. People with children voted for Romney. Old people voted for Romney. People who are gay voted overwhelmingly for Obama. People who are single voted overwhelmingly for Obama. People without children voted overwhelmingly for Obama. And all ethnic minorities voted overwhelmingly for Obama. This is a very divided electorate on some fundamental criteria. And again, you can fold that into the optimistic story and say, well, the good news about that is that the demographics that voted for Obama are the ones that are growing, and the ones that voted for Romney are shrinking. The proportion of the population that is white in the United States is shrinking. 
it's getting smaller progressively over time. The number of people who choose not to get married, who choose not to have children, who choose to self-identify as gay is getting bigger. The number of people who are married is getting smaller as a proportion of the population. Relatively, ethnic minorities are all getting larger to the white population. So this is the progressive story where Obama is going to refashion this new progressive majority out of these different minorities in the face of this shrinking, angry, white majority, which is going to be squeezed. But I would not count on that at all. And there's another story you can tell about the 2012 election, which is the, the election that ran alongside the presidential election, which was the congressional election. That's also congressional election day. And that happened at the same time. And the Democrats also won that one. They won the popular vote for the House of Representatives. And there was a 6% swing, more than 6% swing, between 2010 and 2012 in the vote for the House of Representatives in the United States. And practically, not literally, but practically no seats changed hands. So the Democrats won a majority of the popular vote, and the Republicans still have a thumping majority in the House of Representatives. If we think our system is skewed because of the way our constituencies are divided up, it's nothing compared to what's going on in the United States. But our system is skewed for historic reasons. That happened in America because Republican state legislatures over the last two years in particular have redistricted, if that's a word, in order, you know, gerrymandered is the other word, in order to dump black poor voters into urban areas where their votes can pile up meaninglessly so that Republican seats will be safe. So it's very, very hard for any seats to change hands under that system. Now, that's not evidence of an accommodation with the middle ground. That's ring-fencing partisanship in the American system. The reason Obama is not facing a Democratic Congress is because Republican state legislatures fix the system to prevent that from happening. And the other reason I think it's wishful to think that there is just this gradual accommodation towards the centre ground is the assumption that this progressive majority can be built out of these minorities assumes that America continues to make progress, particularly economically. And that may be true, the corner may have been turned, but if it's not true, it would be a big mistake to think that you can bracket angry white men and sort of build a cordon around them of progressive other people. Because that kind of anger is not only a function of being male or white when an economy goes wrong. I mean, that anger could spread. And it's, it's asking a lot to expect that this progressive minority this progressive majority built of these minorities could survive a spreading of that kind of anger and bitterness if the American economy doesn't improve. So that, that story can, can apply to the same set of facts. And in a sense, it depends what you think is the cycle of American politics. What are we talking about here? Are we talking about that cycle of renewal that American politics seems to go through every generation? Or are we talking about the gloomiest scenario which is a cycle of decline. And I want to just give one more example of these two stories, and then I'm going to try and tell a single story, which I hope brings the two together, and give what I think, well, what I know, but I don't know if it's the answer, but what I know is my answer to the question, and which may be an answer. Um, but just one other version of those two stories, drawing on two books about the cyclicality of American democracy, the cycles that it runs through. Two books that were published quite influential books, actually very influential books, that were published within a year of each other in the mid-1980s, both of which telling completely different stories and both of which look prescient, though they're telling completely different stories. So one of them is by Arthur Schlesinger, the, the historian, the court historian in JFK's Camelot, 
who in 1986 wrote a book called The Cycles of American History, which described essentially a generational cycle in American politics from what he called a kind of excessive faith in individualism and the market through to a belief that you need the state to rescue you from the, the failures of an excessive faith in individualism and the market. So through the Great Depression to the New Deal, and then he thought again through to the Kennedy-Johnson years. And then he was writing in 1986 at the height of the Reagan Revolution, so in what he thought as the trough of this return, cyclical return, to an excessive faith in individualism and the market. But he says the wheel will turn. It will turn back. It always does in American politics, unless something goes catastrophically wrong. And when it turns back, the state will come back in, the pro progressive majority will come back in, Americans will wake up to the fact that what they need is what Schlesinger calls a kind of realistic, experimental politics organised by intelligent politicians who have a sense of the limitations of markets. I think, I can't be sure about this, but I suspect that the person who wrote Obama's recent inaugural had been reading Schlesinger's The Cycles of American History because it basically channels that argument. Obama's second inaugural is a version of that argument, almost explicitly, in which he essentially says the wheel is turning and we have got to return back from that excessive faith in individualism. And Obama says, I'm, I'm paraphrasing it, but he says roughly, when times change, we must. Individual freedom, its protection, requires collective action. And that is Schlesinger's argument. As times change, that's the cycle. The other book, which was published a year later, in 1987, which was by the British historian Paul Kennedy, called The Rise and Fall of the Great Powers, argued that the cycle of American history is not generational 20, 30 years, it's two to 300 years. It's a classic story of imperial rise and fall. There's just one cycle. It doesn't keep going round and round. You're up and then you're down. And that the American empire, as it had developed at the end of the 20th century, had reached the point where it was overextended, as all empires eventually get, taken on commitments militarily, domestically, that it couldn't meet. And it was doomed, um, as the British Empire had been doomed before it, and as all great powers were eventually doomed, by their inability to sustain the scope of their own power. And uh, Kennedy cited as evidence that America was in deep trouble, the habit in the Reagan years of running up budget deficits that exceeded 5%. And he said, no country that behaves like this can sustain its, its, its global reach and its political stability. And then in the 1990s, it was very common to laugh at Kennedy and to laugh at the rise and fall of the great powers. He, he became just another person who bet against America and lost everything. He seemed like an idiot in the 90s because America won the Cold War, all its rivals were seen off, and Clinton balanced the budget. This was a country at the peak of its power. But he doesn't look like an idiot today. That story seems completely compelling now. A 5% budget deficit these days counts as a success relative to the kinds of budget deficits that were built up over the last decade because of these stupid wars and because of that financial crisis. Kennedy did say that the great power that would replace the United States was Japan. And Japan was the rising power that would dominate the 21st century, and that's clearly wrong. But if you replace Japan with China, the argument stands. It's a big, it's a big if, but the argument stands. So you've got these two stories, and they both look prophetic. Now I'm going to try and bring the two stories together. The one thing those two books have in common 
but I don't suppose either author was aware that they had it in common with the other, is that both Schlesinger and Kennedy say that the person who foresaw this cyclical story, their version of it, first, was the author of what remains the best book ever written about America and the best book ever written about democracy, Tocqueville, in the 1830s. They both go back to the 1830s and say there was one person who saw all this coming right back then. It was Tocqueville in Democracy in America. Kennedy says that because in Democracy in America, Tocqueville predicts that the, the coming battle of the 20th century will be between two contrasting empires of equality with completely different conceptions of what equality means, the United States and Russia. And it's that imperial struggle that will define 20th century politics. And Kennedy says that's an amazingly prophetic thing to have said. And Schlesinger thinks that Tocqueville foresaw the shorter cycles of American politics, the rotation from what Tocqueville describes as the tendency of American democracy to be very active and to be very interventionist and the demands of a public to want their government to do stuff for them, and the reaction to that that always sets in, which is of a kind of passivity and a sense of taking a step back and wanting individualism to take over. So they both think that Tocqueville prophesied what would happen. Now, I think they're both wrong, because he's not a prophet, because there aren't prophets. There are no such things as prophets. But I think there's a simpler story that comes out of Tocqueville that brings those two stories together. That's what I want to try and describe in the, the remainder of this lecture. And then I want to give you an example of some of its contemporary application. Because I think there's a much... I mean, Tocqueville can be interpreted in hundreds of different ways, but there's a very simple underlying story. It's not even in the book. It's just the basic insight that Tocqueville got from his visit to America in 1831, the travels that he undertook in order to write Democracy in America. He was there for most of that year, but it was the inside of a year. He was a young French aristocrat. He was a snob. He shared that prevailing view that this was American democracy was a fairly ridiculous way of doing politics. He thought it was implausible when he arrived, the, the common European view. It, it had its attractions, but it clearly wasn't going to last. He arrived in New York, he got off the boat in New York, and as is common with lots of first-time visitors, if you arrive in New York, it just freaked him out. He couldn't understand how it could possibly work. It seemed absurd. He thought it was incredibly undignified, the American way of life, but he also thought it was completely chaotic. It was a mess. He couldn't see what, what was organising it. It just seemed ramshackle, hopeless. And he stayed, and he travelled, and he thought about it, and he changed his mind. And he concluded that it did work. Not New York as such, but America, American democracy. And he travelled around the country. And the conclusion he drew, the simple moral that he drew from that, was that American democracy is better than it looks. It looks awful, but it has this underlying strength. And he had various phrases to capture what was going on, this sort of underlying strength. And one of them was that in American democracy, more mistakes are made, but more mistakes are corrected for. Or as he put it somewhere else, you get more fires in American democracy and more fires get put out. There's more going on. At any given moment, it looks like it's on fire if you just slice it at a point in time. But over time, what you see is a flexible, adaptable system that actually is capable of moving through these very short cycles in which things go wrong and they're corrected for. So you have to take the long view. And that's why he thought that the fuel on which American democracy runs is faith religious faith, but also just faith in the system, faith in democracy. That's the only way this can work, because at any given moment in time, it looks like it doesn't work. 
So if it's going to work, you have to have faith that the appearance that it doesn't work is deceptive. And that's what makes it work. That's the, he thought then the unique strength of American democracy was that faith that something that looks like it doesn't work if you give it time will work. And so what he said about it, slightly paradoxically, is the feature of American democracy that stands out is its opacity, it's opaque. You cannot see through from the surface appearance to the things that make it work, that underlying adaptability and flexibility. You just have to take it on trust. And there's a deep irony here that he was alive to, Tocqueville was alive to, which is that we think that American democracy, or any democracy, because they're open, should be transparent. And he said, no, because it's open, it's opaque. Because it's open, all of the noise is on the surface, all of the chaos is on the surface. It's very hard to follow and understand what's going on in a democracy because it's so relentlessly chaotic. The systems that are actually transparent are authoritarian regimes, even though they're secret, because they're easy to understand. You know what's going on there. A group of people are trying to impose themselves by means of coercive power. And I think it's still true. We're meant to think that Chinese autocracy or Putin's Russia, these are very mysterious regimes. They don't strike me as particularly mysterious. I think it's fairly easy to understand. It's very hard to know what will happen, but it's very hard to know what will happen anywhere. But it's not hard to understand what's going on there. Small elites are using the coercive power of the state to suppress information, to repress people, to enrich themselves, and to hope that the country remains sufficiently prosperous that they can stay in power. The real mysterious society is America. God knows what's happening there. And that was Tocqueville's basic insight. And underlying that, then, is the puzzle, which is the contemporary puzzle of American democracy, which is when it really looks like it's in a mess, how much faith can you have in the underlying adaptability of the system? And it's a really difficult question to answer because, as Tocqueville said, if the thing that makes it work is that faith that nothing's ever quite as bad as it seems, then you need to hold your nerve and not think that it is as bad as it seems. Because if you think it's as bad as it seems, you're likely to take precipitate action, and to put it in Tocqueville's terms, you'll put the fire out completely. I mean, you could pour water over the whole thing and put the fire out. But Tocqueville says that's dangerous because that will put out the fuel, this, this relentless, adaptable drive of American democracy that keeps it going. But if you think you always need to hold your nerve, there's a risk that the mess that you are confronting is really a mess. And if you don't do something about it, the thing will fall apart. And that's the space in which the dilemmas of critical moments in American democracy happen. So I want to give an example of a contemporary version of this, which I think is part of the, the real puzzle of American democracy now. And I want to relate it to a couple of big fundamental challenges that the American state faces. One is climate change and one is debt. But I want to start just by talking about something that's literally under the surface in American politics and life at the moment, uh, which is fracking, uh, which is, I'm not going to try and explain the technology because I don't understand it, but it's essentially pumping water into rock to extract shale gas and oil, tight oil as it's called. As it's called. And the relation between that, which is booming in the United States at the moment, and the fundamental questions of energy supply and climate change. Because in the 1970s, during the oil crisis in the 1970s, American presidents, there were only three that decade, but take two, Nixon and Carter, thought to be very different kinds of presidents. 
Nixon and Carter both regularly confronted the American people, often directly on television, with the warning that if American democracy did not find a way to achieve what they both called energy independence, it was doomed. They both said that. So Nixon gave a televised address in 1973. Carter gave a famous one in 1979, which is known as the Malaise speech, um, which is unfair because he never used the word Malaise, but his enemies pinned it on him because it sounds kind of wimpish and French. Um, he actually said... Uh, America is suffering from a crisis of confidence, which sounds a little bit less wimpish. But it was known as the Malay speech. It's a bit like Callahan in the same year, who was labelled with the phrase crisis, what crisis, which he never said. Carter never said Malays either. But in the Malay speech, as Nixon had done in 1973, both of them ran more or less the same argument. In Carter's Malay speech, he identifies the crisis of American democracy with energy and energy independence as does Nixon in 1973. And they both say, essentially, we cannot carry on as we are dependent on oil for two reasons. One, the oil's going to run out. Certainly, it's going to run out in the places that are supplying it to us. And secondly, those regimes, those Arab regimes, are not reliable partners for us to grow and prosper. Famously, in 1973, they can more or less cut off the supply. So we are dependent. We are not independent. We were founded on a declaration of independence, and they both say we have become dependent. We are now energy dependent, and that is the death of American democracy. They both say that. And so they both say the fundamental challenge the American state faces has got to find a way to achieve energy independence. And they both, one a Republican, one a Democrat, have the same answer to how America is going to achieve energy independence. There are basically two strands to it. First... The federal government has got to invest in new technology so that America can find new ways of supplying its own energy needs. And they both identify, among other things, shale gas as an area where the state needs to invest. And then secondly, they both say, energy independence will only be achieved if we make real sacrifices. We have to retrench. Basically, we need forms of austerity. For Nixon, it's not as extreme as for Carter. For Nixon, the practical proposals include things like lowering the speed limit. For Carter, it means rationing, he says, in his 1979 speech, you know, live on all channels to the American public. He says, we're going to have to start rationing fuel. We're going to need import quotas. People are going to start having to heat their homes less. We need to use less energy if we're going to achieve energy independence. And that's the challenge for American democracy going forward. And if we don't achieve it, we're doomed. And it's a choice. They both framed it as a political choice, a moment of choice. Enough of this kind of waiting for things to work themselves out. Now is the moment in the 1970s where we have to seize this choice. And it's going to be hard. It's going to be a hard sell. That's why they go on TV to sell it. But if we don't do it, the story of American independence is over. Did Americans do it? Of course they didn't do it. And Carter introduced various um, federal rules that did limit the import of oil from the Arab states in the early 1980s, but they were quickly overturned. The numbers went up. The amount of barrels of oil per day that were being imported in the United States continued to rise through the 1990s. In the 2000s, it was much higher than the level at which Carter said American democracy cannot survive this, with the consequences that we know, the Iraq War and others. And Carter said that this thing that is unsustainable, it was sustained. It continued. It turned out, actually, you can't sell that. 
that austerity story, that sacrifice story to the American public and get elected. And yet, the thing that Carter and Nixon said would save American democracy is about to come true. On current estimates, in 2017, America would become, will become a net exporter of energy thanks to the shale gas, the fracking, the tight oil revolution. And that's a minimal definition of energy independence, to become a net exporter of energy. And by 2030, America, on current projections, will be roughly in the position that those states on which it was dependent were in the 1970s. It will be able to pick and choose who it sells its energy to. So this is salvation, right? And there are some people who are saying this is salvation. Fracking is going to save American democracy. But the people who are saying that aren't saying it in the way that Carter and Nixon said it. They are saying, and they tend to be on the right, in fact, I think they're almost all on the right, that what saved American democracy is its underlying ingenuity. Actually, the market saved it. Technological innovation is what saved it. Not panicking, allowing the technology to adapt, let us reach this outcome, which was not the result of a political choice. It was not a reflection of American political integrity. It was simply American political ingenuity, the ingenuity of a restless, individualistic society. And this is the classic story that people who are sceptical about climate change like to tell. Not necessarily sceptical about climate change, but sceptical about the idea that states need to do anything about it. People who think that technology will save us. And those people always run two stories preceding this one. In every book you read that takes this line, technology will save us, they always give two little morality tales. One is Britain, one is America. The British one is from the 1860s. In the 1860s in Britain, the fear was we had reached peak coal. And people like Gladstone and John Stuart Mill, intelligent people, thought that Britain was about to run out of coal. Well, we weren't. We just hadn't started digging yet. And when the technology made the digging possible, it turned out there was loads of coal. And then the other story they tell, and this is in um, Matt Ridley's The Rational Optimist, <coughs> excuse me, it's also in a dreadful book, Super Freakonomics. Um, they both tell this story, which is the New York horseshit story, which is in the, 80, pardon me, in the 1890s, that the environmental fear in New York was that the city was about to drown in a tide of horseshit because the energy supply, the horsepower, was literally being provided by horses. Um, and... People plotted the graph, and if the city continues to grow and we need our energy from this many horses, by 1950, it'll be 10 feet deep and everyone will have drowned. <laughs> and then, as these stories always say, someone invented the motor car. And it turned out in 1950, there was almost none. And the moral is always just at the point people are saying, peak this, peak that. What's peaking is the hysteria, and technology is going to come and save democracy, the country. So fracking stands to oil as oil stands to horseshit in this story. And Tocqueville tells a, a nice version of this, this side of the American mindset. That's just a brief anecdote in some of his letters and diaries. When he was traveling in the 1830s, in 1831 in America, he traveled by steamboat. That was the age of steamboat travel. And steamboats kept sinking. And he was on one that hit a sandbank in the Ohio River, and he very nearly drowned. He thought he was going to die. Um, and when he survived, as it were, he pulled himself onto the bank and dried himself off, he then went to find some steamboat builders to ask them why their boats keep sinking. Why don't they make them stronger? 
And he said, they said, because this is America. And progress in this country, technological progress, happens so fast, it's not worth it. By the time we have made our boat stronger, they will be obsolete anyway, and a new version will have come along. <laughs> and Tocqueville says, that's the American mindset. It is simultaneously reckless and fatalistic. It's built on faith. Let me say briefly three things about that kind of story applied to fracking. The first is that, as I mentioned, though it's the thing that Nixon and Carter said would save American democracy, it's not the thing that they said would save American democracy because they said the thing that would save it is a choice, a political choice to achieve energy independence. And this is, this is not coming through as a political choice. This is coming through as an act of God. I think Americans are surprised to discover. They didn't feel they chose fracking as their salvation. They're surprised to discover that they are about to be saved by it. There was no sacrifice. Carter said this will only be achieved by sacrifice. There has been no sacrifice. And if it's not a political choice, it's not that kind of salvation. Nor is it the answer to the problem of climate change because this is still fossil fuel and this is not going to cause Americans to retrench. This is just going to make fuel cheaper. So what it does at best is it buys time for more technological adaptation, give people more time and keeps America prosperous and powerful. So more time maybe to find the solution. But it's still got to be built on faith. The assumption still has to be that at the point when the solution is needed, when the fracking doesn't work anymore, the next technological solution will be found. This is still faith. This is not a political choice. And then the third thing to say about it is that it's not true that the people, like I say, essentially on the right of American politics, who say that fracking is our salvation, and they are saying this now. I mean, one of the lines that's being run is that the Obama recovery is a complete myth. It's nothing to do with Obama. It's nothing to do with stimulus. It's nothing to do with government in intervention. It's nothing to do with bailouts. It's fracking. The reason America is growing slightly faster, actually considerably faster than most of Europe, is that in America, thanks to lax government regulations, we're allowed to frack, and they're not. And so what this is actually is an energy boom. And then for the people on the right, the final line is, and thank God for that. But those people who are running that argument aren't then saying, well, so what we should do is just have faith in the adaptability of American democracy. It will just adapt its way out of any crisis. They're saying the opposite. They're saying, think like that about energy, but think the opposite to that in relation to debt. They have just taken the Carter-Nixon line and moved it from energy independence to fiscal matters. And they are saying, this is the moment now to retrench. This is the moment for austerity. Not rationing of fuel, but cutting the debt. We have to cut the government. And the reason that we have to cut the government is if we don't act now, this thing is doomed. I mean, that is the rhetoric. It's doomed if we do not seize this moment to make a political choice to shrink our government. So they just turn the argument around and apply it to something else. And then people on the left of American politics turn that argument on its head. And they say, no, you're crazy. Say someone like Paul Krugman would be the standard example of this, the Nobel Prize winning economist and New York Times columnist, who is probably the, the most strident critic of austerity politics in the United States and indeed in this country as well. He thinks it's completely insane. He thinks it's scaremongering. He thinks it's 
pandering to special interests. He thinks what you have to do in a situation that America finds itself in now is to trust the adaptability of American democracy so long as it's allowed to grow. You mustn't panic. You mustn't take premature measures. You've got to let this economy grow and recover. If that means building up the debt, if that means budget deficits, if that means stimulus, fine. American democracy will be fine as, so long as you do not listen to the scaremongers. It's exactly the same argument that the people on the right apply to climate change, people on the left apply to the debt, and vice versa. Krugman thinks we've got to act now on climate change. We've got to seize the moment on climate change. That's not scaremongering. So it's basically a kind of mirror image. Now, I'm not saying it's completely symmetrical, because I think Krugman is right, and the people on the right are wrong. <laughs> but I think it would be crazy to think that there is no symmetry there. This is the point I want to make. I think if you are on the left, we're not on the left of American politics, but if you are on the left, broadly speaking, I think it would be a mistake to think there is no symmetry there. Because the symmetry is that on both sides, there is a view that you can have faith in the adaptability of American democracy on some questions, and you can also have faith in its ability to seize the moment and make a political choice now on other questions. Now, the left and right completely disagree about what those questions are, but they agree about the psychological state in which it's possible to move from one to the other. And I'm not sure it is. And I think the idea that this might be cyclical, that American democracy is adaptable when it needs to be, and then it seizes the moment when it needs to be, is crazily wishful. It's just as likely that the adaptability of American democracy makes it much harder to seize the moment. Because the thing about inherently adaptable systems is actually, when they are successful in the long run, they become inflexible. It's much harder to know when you need a completely different kind of adaptation rather than relying on, essentially, the system that you have now to do its work. If you feel that in the past the system that you have now, given time, has done its work. Let me just say a couple of broad things to sort of try and pull this together, if I can. That view the optimistic view, which is that the cycles of American democracy actually work through a process where adaptability is there when it's needed, and then when the time is right, the moment can be seized. The other problem with that view is that the historical evidence shows that when the time is right for American democracy to really seize the moment, to make a political choice, not just to rely on fracking to save them, but to make an actual political choice, including sacrifice, when the time is right, it's when something has gone catastrophically wrong. So those moments of fundamental political choice in, Ameri in the history of American politics, the Civil War, the Great Depression, and the New Deal. Even Lyndon Johnson in the 1960s and the Civil Rights Revolution and the Great Society, these come out of moments of really acute crisis. And the question is, does it make sense, given the state of American democracy now, to wish such a crisis for that cyclical story to work? When the moment is right, we will take the political choice, or they will take the political choice, to wish a civil war, a depression in which, as in the Great Depression, unemployment reaches 25%, not 10%, but 25%. Or even the LBJ story, which is only possible because of the assassination of JFK, a presidential assassination in circumstances of really toxic racial mistrust, which the 2012 election figures suggest is true now as well. Is it, does it make sense to wish those things on American democracy? I don't think it does. 
And part of the reason I don't think it does is that there's a, there's a problem now, which is the success story, the adaptability story of American democracy, means that for a crisis to really present itself as a moment of choice, not just as a moment to hold your nerve and wait for adaptability to rescue you, for that to be true, the crisis has probably got to be really bad. And yet, my sense of it is that the increasing power and prosperity of American democracy makes it less resilient to crises. I mean, when you think about a Great Depression, a civil war, God forbid, even a presidential assassination, the robustness of those previous experiences, I'm not sure they're a reliable model for what would happen now. A rich, prosperous, comfortable, complacent, even though it's angry, it's angry and complacent society, is not one you want to rely on adapting successfully to a fundamental crisis. And yet, when you look at the, the most recent real crises of American democracy, the 1970s and the 2008 financial crash, they weren't serious enough. The oil crisis, the financial crisis, they were not serious enough to present themselves to the American people and their politicians as moments of fundamental choice. So it's got to be more serious than that. Well, how much more serious than that do you want it to be and still have confidence that this system could survive? And then the other fundamental difficulty here is that we have no idea, what, the thing that we really don't know, it's not that there are lots of answers, there's just no plausible answer to this question, no reliable answer to this question. We have no idea what American decline, if there is going to be decline, we have no idea what that's going to be like. Because no society that's ever got this rich and this prosperous has ever gone into decline. So the, the, the other cyclical story is a false consolation as well. I think the one that says, well, yeah, we do have something to base this on, Rome, ancient Rome, or the British Empire. It's nothing like that, because this society is so much richer and so much more powerful than those societies were. To decline from that, who knows what it means? Maybe decline from that simply means stagnation that can last for ages and ages. Maybe it doesn't mean some kind of precipitate fall. No one knows. There's no data to go on. There is nothing to compare it with anywhere in human history. And so people look around to things to compare it with, and people say, well, maybe America is Japan. It really is Japan, not the Paul Kennedy Japan that's going to take over the world, but the real Japan that suffered 20 years of stagnation. No, it's not. America is nothing like Japan. But the other problem is we don't know what Japan is, because no society like Japan has ever gone into decline. A society that rich, not necessarily that powerful, but that rich. And no society has ever gone into decline facing Japan's demographic crisis, which is just way too many old people. No one's being born there. We don't know what happens when very rich societies stop having children. There is no evidence for that. And then people say, well, maybe America, the real doom-monger say, well, maybe America is Greece. Well, it's not Greece. It's nothing like Greece. But we don't know what Greece is. No one has any idea what happens to a society like Greece that by European standards, was relatively poor, then by any historic standards, becomes seriously rich. Per capita GDP in Greece peaked at about $28,000. And now is on its way to becoming, by European standards, seriously poor again. We know what happens when societies go from being very poor to a bit rich and then very poor. Democracy falls apart. But we do not know. People who say, oh, well, what's going to happen in Greece is a military dictatorship will come back, have no idea what they're saying. Well, they know what they're saying. They have no idea if it's true because there's nothing to go on. There is no evidence. It's complete unknown out there what happens to these rich, prosperous, comfortable societies if they really get stuck. 
The reason America is nothing like Japan and nothing like Greece is that it, its political system, um, its way of doing politics, is fundamentally more adaptable than the recent history of those two countries and those two political systems. It is more dynamic. It simply is more dynamic. But relying on that dynamism, relying on that adaptability to rescue American democracy from any future crisis that it faces seems to me to be extremely optimistic. And yet, that adaptability is the reason why it will be very, very hard for American democracy to seize its moment when it has to. It probably would be able to seize its moment if it faced a crisis equivalent to the crises it's faced in the past. But again, you would have to be very wishful to think another civil war will have another happy outcome. And they can make a film about Lincoln. They can make a film about whoever it is. I mean, to think that that's a model for democratic progress is crazy. So, and I think I'm just inside of an hour. So, if you ask me what I think is going to happen, this is where I tell you I have no idea. Um, there, are, there, there is no way of knowing this future. Anyone who says they know what's going to happen is lying. Trying to imagine the political world, and, and I haven't even mentioned information technology here. I mean, it's another... But imagining this world, this world that is changing so fast. And again, the information technology revolution can be fed into the optimistic story and the pessimistic story, and I'm sure you've read both in newspapers weekly. But imagining this world in 20 years' time, 40 years' time, 60 years' time, what would American democracy look like in 60 years' time? It's, I find it impossible to imagine it. But there's one thing I would bet on. I would bet that it, I bet I know the day in 2072 <laughs> on which there will be a presidential election. I would put money on it. I would not be around, I don't suppose, unless there's a technological revolution in healthcare, to collect my winnings. But I would bet, and I've looked, and if you look at calendars on the web, on some calendars, the date is marked. 2072, and on the quirk of the system, because the 1st of November that year is a Monday... Um, no, sorry, the 1st of November that year is a Tuesday, so the Tuesday after the first Monday is the 8th. The presidential election in America in 2072, I would bet, will happen on the 8th of November. And that's the only thing in, in that, that distant future that you can set your watch by, your sort of geopolitical watch. It might not, but I would be surprised. And of course it's changing, and even the 2012 election, election day is not quite what it was, because there's now early voting. You can postal vote you will be able to vote electronically in all sorts of ways. In 2072, how will people vote? They'll presumably blink, and <laughs> the votes will be tallied. But there'll still have to be an election day. Time is not infinitely malleable. You have to have a day on which the voting, if nothing else, is counted. Who will vote in 2072? I mean, this thing has changed a lot over the last 200 years. It's probably going to be a different set of people. It may include children. It may not include Texans because Texas might secede from the Union, and there's a, there's a move from some people on the East and West Coast to encourage Texas to secede from the Union, and then Austin to secede from Texas. <laughs> so Austin becomes kind of West Berlin with the information superhighway kind of feeding it. Although the difference is in, in, in the real West Berlin, they had the big cars, and East Germany had the small cars. And on this version, Austin would have the small cars. Texas would have the big cars. Maybe Texans will be out. Maybe Mexico will be in. Anything is possible. 
But there will, I would bet, there will be an election on that day. There's something about American democracy that is uniquely consistent in that respect. And if it's an American presidential election, however, whatever form it takes, there will be the hoopla. It will be fascinating. It will be bewildering. The rest of the world will be fascinated and look on with exultation, horror, who knows what. But my sense of it is that it's, it's very realistically possible on that long story that I tried to tell at the beginning that the, the dominant emotion will be the implausibility of this. This is a way of doing politics. And there may even be that by that point, if Americans fall into this trap of relying on the inherent adaptability and not seeing that that is a barrier to making political choice, that actually waiting for the right moment to seize gets in the way of seizing it. If there is no recognition of that, and I am in instinctively pessimistic, that to recognize that you need the kinds of crises that actually would be very damaging for American democracy. There might be a new emotion added to this sense of implausibility, which is some parts of the rest of the world might look on it with some feeling of pity as well, that in the end it didn't work. Thanks. I'd like to know what you think about the lobby system in American politics. Um, it just reminded me when we saw, I think it was last week, when um, Mr. Hagel, Chuck Hagel, was being interrogated by yeah. um, uh, the pro-Israel lobby, very um, strictly, shall we say. And there was really no other question posed about any other aspect of American foreign policy. And then last year, of course, Obama was humiliated by Netanyahu on TV. Now, how does this play out in American politics? How healthy is it for, the, for American democracy, do you think? Well, it's, it's not healthy. It's, it's part of the, the no answer, right? This, this really works. You've got to be kidding. When, when you see certain features of it, some of the most visible features of it, but there's always, there's usually sometimes a positive story to tell. Even some of these interrogations that look extraordinarily partisan and, and being fed by special interests, some, sometimes produce outcomes and pieces of information. I mean, they're, they're, we know stuff about drones that we wouldn't have known without this kind of relentless questioning, which allows people to say, well, though it looks hideous, in some respects, we need to be careful here that we don't jump the gun, because there are features of this system that over time do give it a, a resilience and a strength. And that, I think, is is the danger. I mean, to me, it's clearly evident, and, and then in addition to that, simply the legislation, the Supreme Court decision in Citizens United that allows for unlimited inputs of money, corporate money into American politics, from a European perspective looks insane, from the perspective of many Americans looks insane, and there is a feeling of powerlessness, and if you talk to Americans who feel it's insane, they have a sense that the only way to address this is to change the Constitution, and the Constitution is a very, very difficult topic document to change. So it does look extremely dangerous. But there is always that argument, it always runs alongside this, that these things that look awful 
have this kind of long-term benefit that you can't see in the moment, and were you to shut it down, and that's how the argument runs. The other thing just to say about that is you can tell a similar story to the one I've just been telling you about Israeli democracy as well. I mean, it's, it's a similar account of what is the point at which you think something that looks like it's not working really isn't working, relative to the arguments of people who say we have to be really careful that we don't jump the gun here because this thing has done us all right so far. And Israeli democracy and American democracy can bring out the worst in each other. Um, I think the question of whether American democracy is going to survive or not is um, it's a big one. Uh, but uh, to break it down, um, I think two of the things that I find interesting are the two-party system and the winner-take-all take policy, which are sort of two things that define it in some ways. Yeah. Um, and in a society that's getting fractured in some ways, I think the question is, why is, why is it that everything is so polarized? Is, is yeah. that the nature of the politics? Is that the nature of society? Um, and is there a space for, for a middle ground, or is there a space for a third third view? Yeah, it, it's um, the enduring hope, and, it, and, it, and it, it's part, in a sense, of the cycles of American politics, is at the point where it gets most partisan, there seems to be a space opening up for a third party, a third candidate, some different way of doing it. And then the system seems to close in and squeeze that out again. And over time, that adds to the sense that the system is both entrenched and adaptable. At some point in the future, it's possible, but it is, it, it is a remarkable feature, not just of American politics, but of democratic politics in the Western world, of British politics, just how hard it is, just how fundamental a shift you need to break a two-party system. And it's happened in Britain, but it's only happened once in the last 150 years. And that was as a result of the First World War. And again, you have to be very careful to wish an event like the First World War on the world in order to break the two-party system. In America, it was the Civil War. And so, so it's extraordinarily difficult to find, to find that space. It's not, I don't think, I think, I, I don't know if I said it, but I think American democracy is partisan and divided in a way that hasn't been seen in living memory, but not more than it ever has been in the early years of the Republic, in the run-up to the Civil War, it was worse than this. Which, again, always gives people a sense that it could be worse and you have to be careful what you might wish for. Um, the other striking thing about now is that that um, sort of recovery story that says Obama, his re-election, is a moment for realignment. It's a moment when the Republican Party will have to realise that in order to carry on winning elections, it can't just redistrict. It will have to find candidates that can appeal to a kind of middle ground. But the decision that seems to have been taken by the Obama administration is not to try and negotiate their way through and bring Republicans in, to ditch that post-partisan thing that he came in promising to um, try and further, and just to go for executive power. And that what Obama is going to do is just work out legally what the president is allowed to do without consulting Congress, and then do it. And then hope that if he does it, it will have been done, and it will be hard for Republicans to undo it. Now, that, again, doesn't obviously fit in with a story about a realignment and a move to the center ground. Whether it will work is an interesting question. 
but it might not work. It also sets a dangerous precedent because the Republicans can do it too. Okay, it is on. <clears throat> um, first, just, just an observation. Um, I lived in Washington for about three years and went, went along to think tanks and lectures there. And any lecture with the title America and Crisis in it would always be about 9-11 and the consequences of it. Yeah. And I noticed, fascinatingly, that you didn't really talk about no. it at all. But my question <laughs> We're is, not in Washington. <laughs> <laughs> but my, my question is, you, you, you really talked at the end about the fact that there is no precedent for a rich, prosperous, comfortable society going into decline. And I fully agree with that, but I also think the real question, the real lack of historical precedent, for me, relates to the debt question. Yeah. And it relates to the fact that there's no precedent for the world's great superpower being so heavily in debt to the world's rising power. Yeah. Uh, and I'm talking about two, $2 trillion of, yeah. of treasury yeah. bills in Beijing, in the, in the central bank. So just your thoughts on, on that. Well, yeah, I, so I didn't talk about 9-11, and that was a conscious choice. I mean, there's a way of folding that into some of the story I've been telling, but it seems it's almost been folded into too many different stories, so I wanted to try and tell a different one. Um, and yeah, the debt question, I mean, that relates to the point I was trying to make, that I think that, that assumption that, on the left, that scaremongering about debt is all scaremongering, it may both be true and a dangerous thing to believe, because there is a great unknown out there, which is what it means for the world's single superpower to be so heavily indebted to the world's rising power. And those anxieties, those anxieties I talked about in the 70s about what it means to be dependent on regimes. I mean, it was the same set of anxieties. Basically, we depend for our oil on these regimes, and we simply cannot rely on them to keep supplying us with oil. Now, we might rely on them because we would think they would be cutting off their nose to spite their face, or whatever it would be, to cut off the supply. Um, they actually need us to keep buying their oil. The same arguments relate to China and American debt. Um, it would be extremely dangerous for the Chinese Politburo to decide to stop buying American treasuries. It doesn't mean they would never do it. Um, but like you say, we don't know. But that assumption that on one question you can just have faith that American democracy will be adaptable and get through it. Well, can you really have faith if part of the happy outcome depends upon the whim of people who do not have America's best interests at heart? That's, that's wishful faith. Thank you for a terrific lecture. Um, I'm not sure if this is a whimsical question or a serious question, um, but what do you think would happen, given what you said about women in America, if we actually had, in the course of the next set of elections, women presidents? Would that change anything? Um, well, I, so I always wanted Hillary to beat Obama, and I think that the world would be a slightly better place if she has, if she had. Um, and I would still like to see her win in 2016. But I think it's asking a lot to think that, in a sense, part of the problem with Obama's election, um, and I have to be careful how I say this, it was so symbolically magnificent that it was easy for that fact of renewal to gloss over the fact that nothing was really being renewed. Um, and in a sense, I think Europeans fell for it more than many Americans did. And the other thing about Obama's election, if you look at the sort of historical story, is that 
the salvation presidents of America, and I'll try and give a kind of ecumenical account of who they were, say Lincoln, Roosevelt, and Reagan. Maybe it's not those three, but they tend to be. The one thing those three people had in common is when they arrived in the White House, Americans thought, oh my God, we're doomed. For all three of them. I mean, Lincoln was just a lawyer, just another political lawyer. Roosevelt was just another political hack. And Reagan was just an actor. Um, Obama arrived in office as Lincoln, <laughs> as the next Lincoln. Well, Lincoln didn't arrive in office as Lincoln. So if Obama arrived as Lincoln, he's going to turn out to be something else. And there is this thing that, that democracies, not just American democracy, but maybe particularly because of this faith, it feeds on hope. But democracies are very bad judges of what to put their hope in. It tends to be only over time that you see what was the reliable thing and what wasn't. And so I would hesitate to say, well, <laughs> though I would like to see it happen, particularly if it was Hillary, um, that a woman president is going to solve this problem that I described. But I think there's a fundamental problem of just thinking that, as it were, symbolic transformation is real transformation, because it's not. You speak of faith and trust the yeah. American people have in their political system. To what extent is that founded on their religious belief, their sense of uh, historical destiny, or their written yeah. constitution? And why don't we have it? <laughs> <laughs> well, so, so I, don't, I don't want to just give talk. You know, Tocqueville's answer was it depends on, on religion. Um, but it's not just religion, because the religion then has to produce what you might call a secular faith in democracy, and, and we don't have it. Um, but as I said, that faith in the system goes along with a complete mistrust in all the people who inhabit the system at the moment. And that, that mindset is quite hard to negotiate um, for anyone. Um, it, it rests on a lot of things, but I think among other things, what it rests on is simply the continuity of that system, which we don't have. I mean, we might think in Britain that we do, that we have this thing enduring, unwritten constitution. But relative to some of the things that I was trying to talk about there, we really don't. We don't, we don't have the symbolic moments that connect us right the way back to the beginning. Um, our system is both too haphazard and it's too ill-defined. We do not have that written constitution. Um, and maybe we don't have the faith too. And of course, part of a story that's not just told on the American right is that because we in Europe are now a godless people, we're doomed because we don't have the faith, the only faith that can keep this thing going. We are just going to succumb to sort of technocratic, eventually dictatorial politics. Their faith and the fact that they keep having children and we don't. These are the two things that make the fundamental difference. They have babies and they have God, and we don't have either of those two things. And on not just the rights account, though primarily the rights account, that's the thing that's going to make the difference. If you want to ask me, how do we make babies in God? I don't know. Do you ever see the Americans amending any of their amendments? Well, the, 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 I know from talking to people, talking to Americans, um, and also uh, non-Americans who live there, that there is possibly, again, in this um, idea that when the shift has to happen, it will happen, there is a rising movement in America that says, actually, now we have reached a point where constitutional amendments is the way to change this logjam. 
And though it's very difficult, it's by no means impossible. And there are lots of small movements now, but they could grow, um, which are trying to organize the mechanics of this. And it would have to undercut the partisan system. And it would be a question of finding ways of... It will be very difficult, but it is not impossible. After there are lots of amendments, and they, and they happen. And uh, the, There are a range of issues over, over which it may be possible to amend the Constitution. But it's very difficult, and I don't think it necessarily addresses the fundamental problem. And one reason it might not address the fundamental problem is constitutional amendments, I think, can take you so far. But they're not really those fundamental moments of political choice where a people kind of grips what needs to be done. They are, after all, changing the rules of the game. To successfully change the amendments may foster or continue to foster the idea that this system is ultimately adaptable in ways that will rescue it. And I'm not sure that just amendments will rescue it. So were this to, say, be successful, were it to be possible to have a constitutional amendment that overturns the Supreme Court's ruling about corporate donations to politics... I'm sure that would help. The idea that that's the salvation of American democracy seems to me a dangerous trap that could then be fallen into. Um, for those people interested in learning about um, babies and faith, my dad can help you all. He's an expert. Um, just some of the things you were talking about struck me of the um, of sort of reminded me of emergence theory, the kind of chaos of everything forming yeah, yeah. an organized system. Yeah. And I was wondering, you talked about not, to, not talking about IT and the disruptive possibilities of the information technology. Yeah. I was wondering if you could talk about that and also how that might offer a disruption through intergenerational differences of opinion and uh, the sophistication which younger people have in IT that... Maybe the political system yeah. doesn't. Um, I mean, I, so if I could partly answer with an anecdote. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, Eric Schmidt, who's this, the executive chairman of Google, came to give a series of lectures in Cambridge on um, democracy, America, war. And his conclusion was that Google is going to solve all of these problems. <laughs> um, and part of the reason he gave a fantastically, a, a relatively patronising series of lectures to... Young people, not me, but mainly students, young people, who were told that they were going to save all of this because by the time they reached politics, they would have a sufficiently sophisticated understanding of this new technology that they could use it in such a way as to allow it to sort of overcome the logjam, which he implied was being created by old people who didn't understand the technology and the people they elected into office. Well, one of the problems, and I don't think the information technology revolution is going to change this, is that old people vote and young people don't vote. So, um, but also, by the time those young people he was talking to will actually, under this kind of system, though some young people make it, make it up the tree. And, and politicians are getting younger. You know, the leaders are getting younger. But still, there's about a 20-year lag. So it seems... It, it's, 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 again, wishful, I think, to assume that, that, that this system will correct itself because there is this challenge... There is this thing that a lot of people don't understand, including the current generation of politicians. But young people understand much better its creative possibility. So if only we could get those people into politics, it would work. I'm not sure it would work. And I'm also not sure even politicians who understand technology, when they become politicians, then know what to do with it. And after all, medical technology is pretty well understood by politicians, though some of them are sceptical. Climate uh, science 
the basic facts, I think, reasonably well understood by politicians, doesn't mean they know what to do about it, and they're perfectly capable of advocating the stupidest things because they think people want it. Um, so, no. <laughs> we have time for one more question. Maybe you can see it. Thank you very much uh, for your lecture and for the opportunity to ask a question. Um, I just wondered, you mentioned in the lecture that um, the Americans have great tolerance for violence, um, yeah. and they do. And uh, But I, I also wonder how you assess this current moment in that regard. There seems to have been some moment of soul-searching yeah. yeah. after the shootings. Yeah, um, and then this may be one of those moments where you get not a crisis but a tragedy, because sometimes it takes a tragedy rather than a crisis. And in a sense, actually... For example, the assassination of JFK was a tragedy, not a crisis. It didn't create a crisis, though it's possible to imagine an equivalent event now creating a crisis. But you get a tragedy and not a crisis that does, that does trigger a change. And it, and it may happen, though, it's not going to trigger a change as things stand. There will have to be this realignment. There will have to be this sense that new kinds of progressive majorities can be built out of these disparate groups. It is possible. Um, I'd, I, I don't think it's possible from the outside to know whether this is a genuinely... It's unlikely to be a transformative moment, and as I'm sure you'll know, the, the main consequence of the tragedy that's provoked the soul-searching was just to vastly increase the number of Americans who bought guns. Um, so these things always have counter-effects as well as the effects that you desire. It's possible. Um, it's, a, it's a sort of gloomy take on politics that we just have to get periodically the right tragedies for these things to work. And I think getting the right tragedies is as hard as getting the right crises. And you can't engineer these things. I mean, you just can't. So it is, in a sense, it is fatalistic. Thanks. Thanks for listening. For more, go to lrb.co.uk.